following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Strap in, movie fans. We're about to take you 30 years into the past to explore the biggest blockbuster hits of the 1990s. I'm Pete. And I'm Michael. And And this this is is Box Box Office Office 30. 30. Welcome to Box Office 30's review of Lethal Weapon 3. I'm Pete, and as usual, I'm joined by my good buddy and co-host, Michael. How are you doing, sir? I'm well. I'm actually... So this may be the last podcast that I record from my office as it currently exists. (laughs) Um, And... I'm glad we're recording this today when it's a little bit cooler outside than it was over the weekend because it was like 97 degrees and I have no ACs and <laughs> my wife's been selling off half the furniture in our house and getting rid of stuff and I'm like somebody's just everything's in boxes or moved out and I'm going to be you know kind of willy-nilly for the next couple of months all over the place recording wherever I can. So this is this is the the farewell voyage to my office as, as it stands. Although I, maybe like we could turn that into a positive of like one of those recordings. Maybe you'll come out here because I know we were chatting about that already. Like maybe we'll do a nice in-person thing again, which would be fun. And, and I'll hit record on your microphone that time. How about that? <laughs> I, I will say though um, – Going through this whole process of preparing for construction, um, and this is maybe just a, a me thing, but every time we talk about like my my future office, everyone's like, oh, what are you going to put in your man cave? And I'm like, <laughs> I hate the word man cave. It's, well, it's- I, what cracks me up about it is that anybody would be saying to you at this point in time, what are you going to put in your man cave? Because if there's a definition of a man cave, you've already had it <laughs> like yes. in the current office setup you've had. It's like full of all manner of cool DC and Marvel and, and Star Wars and all sorts of statues and, and posters and pop figures. And it's like all that same stuff is going back in. Yeah. <laughs> like It, it like, went out. It's coming back <laughs> in. Yes. But I feel like the term man cave has to go away with like, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Those things just need to go away. Like yeah. those, those terms are dated and just, it's like, all right, it's my office. It, I look at it like this. My wife gets the design 95% of the house. I get one little corner. This yeah. is all I get. There you go. So, but we'll see. Anyway, I digress. Um, <laughs> I will say I am so grateful that we did this movie versus <laughs> any of the other movies because I absolutely love this movie. And I realized that like the buddy cop, you know, action comedy genre 
may be my favorite genre there is. <laughs> and it's just like, it was really kind of invented by these two. And I just love it. It just, it just was so good from, from, from jump. I was like, this movie's fantastic. I forgot how good this movie is. So anyway, for me, this movie is peaks and troughs and like the peaks are peaks but the troughs are troughs. So I don't know. I go a little bit back and forth. I had a fun time watching it, but uh, you know, we'll hit some of these points when we hit them. So I will I, say I'm still not convinced I wouldn't have rather done uh, Encino man, but ugh. we may still have that in our future. We'll see. I will say that of all of the lethal weapon villains, this one might be the most one dimensional and, and just sort of like, I don't really care about the villain. I just want to see Riggs and Murtaugh in hijinks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes, essentially. And I have notes about this later on, more specific to plot beats. But for me, and apparently for Siskel, because I went back and like I was trying to find information and I found yet another Siskel and Ebert thing. Like him and I are on a page with this one. In so much as that you're saying the villains are one-dimensional, I feel like the villains are zero-dimensional in this movie. Like, honest to goodness, they're just filler to make stuff happen. Like, the motivations of the villain... Are nonsense, The backstory is just the dumbest, like, least thought out, like, let's throw something together, garbage fire (laughs) of maybe maybe any film I've ever seen like yeah, that has yeah. a villain like this in it. Yeah, this villain is complete nonsense, yeah. and <laughs> we'll, we'll get into it. But I will point this out, and I'm sure you're going to cover this a little bit. I have to say that this particular Lethal Weapon movie, and probably the other ones as well, make Los Angeles one of the craziest police cities ever. <laughs> and it, and everything always happens right by Riggs and Murtaugh. Like, yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad that you brought this up. And like, look, I was actually thinking about this as I was waiting for you to pop on tonight. Like it was literally the train of thought that I had going. James Bond, Mission Impossible, whatever. Like whatever movie you're watching in this sort of action genre – it's almost always way larger than life. So you have to kind of like, you know, check your brain at the door, you know, you're like using even like a John McClane sort of thing. Like, like we, I think we were questioning it when we were talking about Die Hard. Like how do these crazy once in a lifetime things keep happening to this one individual? All right. right. This movie's got two individuals (laughs) and yet still like these just crazy circumstances keep seemingly popping up just for them. And again, I think, think they're just detectives it's not like they're they're uh they're sergeants they're just police sergeants they're not even lieutenants i mean it's it's yeah i mean like (laughs) there's so many things even forgetting like lethal weapon one two and four and the potentiality for five just in this one movie alone the things that just happen to happen when they're nearby is like it's like what are the chances of that you know and again it's like you know to the level of of you know uh and again any movie like this it's like you're probably like questioning like what am i even talking about here any movie any video game the body counts are ridiculous they don't make sense to real life whatever but like it's so questionable it's so 
out of this world farcical that not only would all these big scale crazy things happen to them repeatedly, but their reactions to these things, you know, like, <laughs> are so like there's no way Riggs is still a cop. You know what I mean? Right. Like he's been fired years ago for being completely out of his mind. He's probably in a straitjacket somewhere, <laughs> you know, like, you know, they have a, a psychologist and I don't actually have a note about her, but like throughout this movie kind of like, like every chance she sees him, like, oh, you should really come in and talk with me. Or actually, I guess she's talking to Murtaugh, which actually yeah. Yeah. doesn't even make sense because he's the one that's like pretty grounded. <laughs> in what, what's funny about it is like in reality for for police officers, if they even fire their weapon, they have to like – they're not out in the field immediately – for a while <laughs> and they're required to go to see the precinct psychologist like they're just not just sort of like an option yeah i want to see the movie lethal paperwork you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's got to be a t-shirt right there yeah, exactly <laughs> but so so like let's dive in because point okay. in case this movie opens bananas maybe like one of the most like completely nonsensical like has nothing to do with anything scenes <laughs> but that's what's basically so great about this movie there's just a bunch of crazy <laughs> scenes like, all right so Riggs and Murtaugh pull up to the scene of an active bomb threat in a building which you kindly mentioned last time I was like hey look at you coming up with the facts and I ended up looking up a little bit more and getting some more of the precise details on it um, a building that was going to be demolished in real life and they managed to use it to do this film. Um, and they basically like, it actually took place in the city of Orlando, despite the film taking place in Los Angeles. And in fact, the building that they blow up is the old town hall building, which is right next to the new town hall building, uh, which you can actually see in the background of the shots, but they dressed it up to look like it was like something else. They put like advertisements and things on it. Oh, that's funny. But Basically, they roll up and the scenario is the bomb squad is coming. A bomb has been called in. They know that it's like in the building and basically like Riggs somehow convinces Murtaugh that he they should go in this building and just check everything out. They just want to <laughs> just want to look at it, which is insane. And actually, even Murtaugh says so, because he's like, first of all, he's like, all right, I've got eight days to retirement. We're past. We've had in the past movies like I'm too old for this, you know, like. Now he's got eight days away from retirement, which I think is probably early on or maybe the originator of of this type of trope. Yeah. Don't quote me on it. I don't know if this is the movie that originates the I'm about to retire cop thing, but it certainly is one of the early, you know, progenitors of such a thing. Um, I got to Google that word. (laughs) Yeah, there's there's one of those uh, nickel words. Um, But – (laughs) <laughs> he's trying to convince him, like, all right, well, we're just going to go and we're just going to look. Um, we're just going to open the, the door to the car. Uh, I'm going to – I think I'm going to cut the – and it's like there's no reason for that. Like there's a dedicated bomb squad coming and like Riggs's whole thinking is like, oh, the bomb squad never shows up, which leads me to believe that he's questioning like the movie idea that the bomb squad <laughs> – never shows up and of course it's a very funny scene where he's like i'm gonna cut the the blue wire he's like well how do you know it's the blue wire and it's like oh well remember the the bomb under your toilet which i love one thing about this movie is they do pay a ton of reference to To, the previous movies yes movies which is kind of fun um 
and he's like, oh, it was the it was the blue wire that time and everything. And it's like, well, how do you know it's going to be the same one this time? It's like, I got a feeling. <laughs> and then it's like, it's like, all right, well, I'm going to go ahead and cut the red wire. And I was like, whoa, you just said the blue wire. And he's like, did I? You know, so I don't know. It's very funny. Uh, and a cat shows up in the middle of this, jumps onto the top of the car, which scares the bejesus out of them. <laughs> and, of course, he cuts the, the whichever wire, I think the red wire. And, uh, and his immediate reaction is like, grab the cat. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, and, he, and they have like another like line, you know, in the banter where he's like, that was nearly a catastrophe, you know, yes. like, and it's just like, all right, that, that kicks the whole thing uh, off, I guess. Um, but because of this, the two of them are busted down to patrolmen, I guess, you know, and actually another quick little fun fact is like they come out of the building and uh, this guy says to them something like great job or good job or whatever. That's actually the current at that time. Mayor of Orlando got a little cameo. No kidding. Um, in the, in the films. So That's we'll... funny. Um, so fun fact. So this movie, they get bumped down to patrolmen. In Lethal Weapon 4, they do something also crazy in the beginning of the movie. And the captain calls them in and says, you're going to get promoted. And they're like, we're going to be lieutenants? And they're like, no, you're going to be captains because you guys are too dangerous to be out there. (laughs) That's actually maybe a good idea. Well, so again, like, and this is like, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that happens only to serve whatever's currently going on in the plot. Oh, yeah. No overarching reasoning past that. So point in case, they're busted down to patrolmen for about a day. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that that really serves to do is, you know, a little comedic, you know, sort of thing of them having to be in like the blues or whatever. But more importantly, it just puts them in the right place to see this armored car robbery, which really they didn't actually need to be patrolmen to see like it could have still just been them doing their normal thing. And then later their captain just puts them back to full status Yeah, for no reason. You know, <laughs> it basically gets him in trouble with IA and, and the higher ups. And, you know, like if it's apparent that the two of them were responsible for the building, having blown up at best, they'd be knocked down to patrolmen. In reality, they most likely are out on their butts. That's like, that's that, you know what I mean? Like they completely overstepped their positions and, and are technically responsible for the bomb going off prematurely. So I don't know. I mean, again, this movie doesn't exactly mirror real life, but there's a lot of stuff in this where I'm just like, wow, this is way out of left field. (laughs) But what's oddly is like, so they go through this armored car thing, but Conveniently, this armored car thing ties into the villain of the movie. Yeah, we'll we'll get there too. Yeah. So anyway, they they're messing with like this jaywalker and everything, just like screwing around with him. But they, at the end of that, observe some what appear, appeared at first to be real armored truck guys being questioned by the banker only after he's given them the money saying like, Hey, wait, where's the regular guy? And it's just like, now is when you're asking that Um, as the actual armored truck is pulling up. So of course, like Riggs, like marathon man runs and jumps in the back of the truck while Murtaugh too old for anything hops into the, uh, I guess the patrol, the real no, he hops into the armored truck with the other, the actual driver who's really nonplussed that her, partner has just been shot to death yeah and instead spends the entire chase just hitting on murtaugh yeah utterly bizarre (laughs) um like like 
Yeah. The, the, the body count and, and the subsequent people that get killed in this movie, other uh, other than one, nobody cares. They're just like yeah. – just dead guys. And it's a cool chase scene. Um, and, you know, like he, he's climbing all over the truck. He manages to disable the driver. He kicks the guy in the back out who gets away, who, as you just mentioned, shows up shortly. Um, Thereafter. But, you know, they managed to at least catch the one guy. I guess that's kind of a win. So uh, this all leads to we're back at Murtaugh's house, very famous house, although – Interesting to note, this is the only movie out of the Lethal Weapon franchise where there's somebody not, like, threatening his family or showing up at his house. Because we were talking about that in the recall, but actually nobody really ever does that at his house this time. Um, But they're trying to sell the house because he's going to retire. And now one thing I was very unclear on, and maybe you picked it up or maybe they just didn't ever say, is that he, like I said, he's eight days away from retiring but he's selling the house with that. Did he say where he's nope. moving to? Nope. Yeah, they were just alluding that, like, as soon as he's retiring, they're also selling the house and just going somewhere. I don't know if it's somewhere else in the town. But like, his, like his kids are still of city. school age. Like, he's yeah. <laughs> it, it, it seemed, and I'll get to more of that later, but it seemed, like, kind of arbitrary. And I think this is why. So... Uh, we realize very quickly where Leo comes in on this is that he's acting as the broker for selling their yeah. house. He's now a real estate agent. Yes. He now, used to be like a, a low level, you know, bookie or whatever. Now he's a, a real estate agent. <laughs> as you do. <laughs> um, Leo was not in this film. He was written in very last minute. Apparently this film underwent something in the area of 40 rewrites. 40 for zero. Now I realized um, after the fact last time that normally when I'm giving all the stats about the movie, as we're getting into our recall uh, that I usually bring up the director, but I usually also bring up the writer and I somehow completely forgot to look up and bring up the writer. Um, So first of all, this movie has several writers because Mm. of this issue not the least of which was, and we've talked about this happening before, Carrie Fisher doing some rewrites. Apparently she was just working as somebody who did a lot of dialogue and rewriting during this time. So she is also uncredited as a, a part writer in this, specifically having rewritten or writing in quite a lot of Lorna's dialogue. Okay. Um, so Leo is, uh, by the way, the writer of, of note on this film is Jeffrey Bohm. Yeah. Bohm, I think. Uh, I'm not going to get into what other stuff he's written, but apparently he's a little bit of a prima donna from what I read in some of the this stuff here because um, while other people were brought on to help write things with him or to kind of co-write things with him, he kept just rewriting their stuff. And even right up to like the dates of shooting, he was rewriting and rewriting things. So it sounded like there was a lot of kind of problems with him, between him and Dick Donner, between him and the other writers – so it's amazing that this movie came out as good as it did because usually when you and I have seen these kind of massive writing issues where a movie's been rewritten 40 times, you usually end up with just a flaming garbage fire. <laughs> but this one is at least passable given what we've got here. But again, I will was- say he's got this this uh, this uh, Jeffrey Bohm guy. has got quite a resume. He's he does. Got- he does. And, and like I say, just for time purposes, I'm not going to go down the list That's on fine. it, but – Feel free to look him up. Um, 
but anyway, Leo was supposed to have in the original script have moved to New York. So he wasn't going to be any kind of part of this, but they decided they wanted a little bit more of Leo's comic relief, I guess, and brought him in. Personally, I thought Leo was a complete waste in this film. I didn't find him very funny, except for that one bit where he's talking about the uh, AT, the, the hospital and everything, which I think you were quoting yes. last time was very good. But again, and I, if funny enough, again, going back to the Siskel and Ebert thing, they were sort of saying, like, you know the strength of a film based on if Joe Pesci is not all that funny in it. And I didn't find him to be that funny, and I think it's because he was like a last-minute mm, tag just on. to basically be – Basil exposition and just come yeah. in and like, you know, get them where they needed to be several times with like kind of no trouble whatsoever, seemingly. <laughs> um, another big rewrite is Lorna, um, who really? was originally in the original script written as a man. Um, IA agent who was as crazy as Riggs and was basically going to be like the Riggs anti-Riggs sort of thing. Like the two of them would be butting heads because they were very similar personalities. Like Riggs 2.0? Yes. And with that, because then Riggs didn't have a love interest in this one and they wanted to push that narrative, he was in fact going to be having a secret affair with Murtaugh's daughter, which they allude to several times in this film and is basically probably little bits left over from when that was originally going to be the plot line. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that they didn't do that because it would have been super creepy <laughs> and really like kind of gross given the two of them friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, but B, I think the Lorna character actually makes this movie for me. I think. Yeah. Oh, she's the best part of the movie. I kind of misremembered how much her involvement was, but actually I really liked her character and I, I thought she actually brought something to the table. I feel like you and I are always in these films saying like, Oh look, they've brought in like some young girl to play against the guy and she has nothing to do except sit there and look pretty in this one. They brought an age appropriate woman in to play a really cool character who had a lot to do. So yeah. <laughs> I actually uh, really appreciated her addition. So uh, I think that was a good change. And that specifically was a Dick Donner change. So good on you, Dick Donner. Yeah, no, uh, Renee Russo is fantastic in this movie. She she steals every scene she's in, I feel like. All right. So uh, we get this little blip that's worth mentioning, which I thought was kind of funny, which is that um, Riggs is off cigarettes and he's like craving something else. So like <laughs> Murtaugh jokingly hands him like a, a box of dog treats and he tries one. And then like the rest of the movie, he's like eating the dog treats until yeah. it runs out, which I thought was actually a pretty funny uh, ongoing gag throughout it. Um, so Leo is definitely the worst broker ever. He's uh, telling the people um, how the car crashed through the window and the whole place got shot up. And like Murtaugh's like in the other room, like, I want to kill him. He's not, he's going to ruin this. And of course the people take off at like, you know, high speed. Um, I found a really, really random note about the car mm-hmm. that the people drove away, which I thought was kind of interesting to share. Okay. So this car is a GMC typhoon. And specifically what I found is that the typhoon used, which was painted in Aspen blue with a gray cloth interior was a 1991 model, which was one of four that exist in the world, produced as prototypes prior to its official production run in the 1992 model year, and it's rumored to be stored in a private vehicle collection with roughly 500 miles in the odometer. I just thought that was a super random note, and I'm wondering, like, how they randomly got this car 
for this one scene, <laughs> you know, like this like weird little prototype it's car. Weird. So just super odd note, but I thought I'd include that because I was thought it was very funny them peeling away at, at top speed. It's too bad it wasn't the Honda Atos. Exactly. That's a whole other story for another day. <laughs> Honda, as a matter of fact, Honda Atos. Um, all right. So after this, um, Riggs and Murtaugh see his son outside talking with some friends, including Daryl. Um, but Riggs says something about them having gang colors. Um, that's going to come up a little bit again later. Um, so next thing we cut to is a car is pulling up to a development being worked on. And I don't know if you caught this by Mesa Verde construction company. And I'm just wondering where's Kim Wexler and Trip and Jimmy. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah. I was like, Ooh, Mesa Verde. Like, are you caught up at all on, uh, on better call Saul this season? I honestly, at all? I've only watched the first season. Oh, I didn't like seen it. past the first season. No, it was boring. What? <laughs> All right. You know how you are always talking about how you're going to get trash on the internet from people? That's what you need to be getting trash on the internet people from. So write your friend Michael at Knizzle, <laughs> two ends and let him know how trash that opinion is. Because that's maybe one of the best shows on the on the whole television setup. We've been watching a lot of billions. But I, yeah, we, I tried Better Call Saul the first season. I couldn't get through it. Ugh. Didn't, didn't finish right. it. Well... Mesa I love Verde. Breaking Bad. I love Breaking Mesa Bad. Mesa Verde plays a whole huge role in in uh, in that show. So okay. <laughs> maybe you want to check back into this final season because I think they're going to have uh, Walter and Jesse back on. All right, that's what I've heard, yes. Okay, so uh, to your point earlier, we meet Smitty, um, which I don't know that we knew his name was Smitty when we first encountered him, but Smitty is the guy who managed to get away from the armored truck by being thrown out on the highway earlier in the film and uh our our main villain of the film um who i kept screwing up his name <laughs> unfortunately travis yes i i think i thought they kept calling him travers t-r-a-v-e-r-s at first so i wrote a lot of my early notes with travers but then i realized very close to the end that it was in fact travis Mm-hmm. Um, so we meet Travis and we find out, of course, he's going to be our art. They kind of like threw it off for a moment because you sort of see this one other guy um, talking at first. and You sort of think he's going to be the villain, villain, but then you realize that this Travis is going to be because him and just everybody on his construction site apparently are all murderers mm-hmm. and they are all ex and 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 kill poor <laughs> Smitty. Smitty in, it, in cement. <laughs> but, it, but the weird thing is, it's like the shallowest slab of cement that they're pouring. Like, like he's not going to be fully submerged <laughs> under the cement. There's going to be a lump in the cement where Smitty's head is going to be. Yeah, or presumably if it's any kind of, like, block that they're going to be building stuff on, it's not going to, like, support the weight. You're going to get, a, like, a sinkhole eventually yeah. or something. I don't know how – I mean, it, it's interesting for the movie at least, but uh, – yeah, <laughs> but poor Smitty is 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 just on his way out. But I I kind of couldn't believe that this entire company has a day job in construction and a night job just being like gun runners and murderers. <laughs> Another super farcical thing. Like it'd be one thing if there was like this inner circle of guys who are like, all right, these are like the hired killers and they're going to kill this guy. But they were just murdering this guy in broad daylight. In with everybody standing there. With like 40 people around. 
it, it was quite something. So I, yeah, I don't know. That, that, again, this goes to that like zero dimensionality of the villain and how poorly underwritten he is that he seemingly can get away with anything at any time loosely because he used to be a cop. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it's, it, I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense. But anyway, we get, the, we get this sort of intro to, to, you know, who he is at least via this. So next thing we cut to a scene where Riggs and Murtaugh kind of pull up somewhere and I was very unclear if they knew that Murtaugh's daughter was nearby at her job or if they just happened to pull up in this area to get food or whatever. But uh, essentially, Riggs sees somebody about to be... No, he sees Murtaugh's daughter. Like, he knows well, her. I, I know that now. And, <laughs> and you can infer it, but from his perspective, he sees basically somebody grabbing a victim and holding them at gunpoint. Um, and so he starts to run over. Now, thank you for filling in the Captain Obvious portion of this, because I was just about to say it was very obvious that this was about to be a movie set that he was running onto. And sure enough, yes, it turns out that it's a movie set. And his daughter specifically is working on this movie set. And I'm wondering where are the PAs that are supposed to be blocking your average pedestrians from entering the set? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but the director in like full tool mode is like, well, you're fired. And he's going to fire uh, the daughter. Now, I had forgotten this about Riggs, but he's very into the Three Stooges. Yes. And he basically gets the daughter rehired by enacting a real life like – stooges act on this director like poking him in the eyes and stuff like this and i'm like what is happening is this real life like yeah. it was so insane and like somehow this director gives her the job back so um okay great never comes up again doesn't really have anything to do with anything else um again i feel like it's probably a victim of these rewrites and it might have had more to do when he was actually secretly dating the daughter mm -hmm. but otherwise it's like it just kind of served no purpose. Like yeah. they showed up, saw the daughter, got her fired, got her rehired. Don't really touch on that point at all ever again. <laughs> yeah, that's literally it. Yep. It's just like, there it is. It's over. Moving on. Yep. Um, so uh, we cut to a scene where they're in a locker room and somehow, very unclear to me, Murtaugh's gun goes off. Uh, while they're in the locker room, I guess they're alluding to the fact that like Murtaugh is too old for this or mm -hmm. about to retire. Again, it doesn't really make sense to me. Like, you know, like somebody like him would have his gun on safety and things like that. He doesn't seem like he's so stressed out or upset or screwed up in his life that like this would happen. But it does. And it basically like, you know, there's a lot of like scenes that I like they sort of do something like this in order to just have them have heart to heart and to kind of yeah, expand on their friendship. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that three films into a franchise that we still need to be expanding on how close friendship. They like they've clearly been established to be pretty close at this point. So again, going back to my Siskel and Ebert thing, I just have to say, I'm really on a page with Siskel on this one. He was talking about that. Like the first 40 minutes of this movie is just like drab, boring filler. And I'm with him on this again, like, like scenes like this just really didn't do anything for me to progress the story. Like again, like three movies in, we know they're friends. We know that they're thick as thieves. We've seen 
that basically Riggs comes over and lives at his house, has a really good relationship with his wife and kids. I mean, like, we just don't need to keep reestablishing this. So I don't know. Fair. What did blow my mind is that in order to cover up the gunshot and all these cops coming into like being like, hey, we just just heard a gun go off. He's just bashing lockers lockers and acting crazy. And like somehow these cops are like, oh, yeah. It was definitely him hitting lockers, not a gun that just went yeah. off. <laughs> yeah, you'd think the cops would know what a gun sounds like. But, I, yeah, especially when they just came in saying, who just had a gun go off in yeah. here? What's, um, what's, the only real like funny part of this scene is this reveals Murtaugh's girdle that he's wearing yes, under, under yes. his <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's the only point of this whole scene is that girdle. Yes, which again, because another running gag – Again, I'm not sure why they need this. You know what I mean? Like, it's not even like he's that overweight, really. Um, so, again, I think it's just it's just another, like, gag for the sake of being a gag. It's not a strong gag, but, yeah. like, it, you know, that's basically what they do in this movie. They establish the dog cookies. You see the dog cookies pop up over and over. You establish the girdle. You see the girdle pop up over and over. There's just like a bunch of running gags in this film. And again, like sometimes they hit and it's funny. And sometimes it's like, all right, I get it. You know, it's fine. Another such gag, which again, I wouldn't even say that it's a, a gag per se. But at this point in the movie, Mel has put his hair up into a ponytail. Yes. And I'm like, oh my God, this ponytail is not working for you. Now, funny (laughs) enough, when we see him a few years down the road in The Patriot, he has another kind of ponytail that he does not. And I think that works better for him. But he has just like this little like baby weird little ponytail in this film. It's like the hair, he has this feathered hair. And like, that's fine. I'm used to seeing Mel Gibson with that, but like, it's not quite long enough that he's able to maintain this ponytail while he's a cop. Mm. And it has a weird effect of when he has it in the ponytail and he's facing a way where you don't see it clasped up. It looks like he just has like a normal kind of regular cop haircut. Yeah. And then like, (laughs) it's just so bizarre. So I'm like, God, like I wish you would just cut that thing off. And then ironically throughout the rest of the film here on out, like three or four more people say to him, like, you need to cut your hair. <laughs> so I, I don't know if this was written in and that the hair was kept that way intentionally or if the people like on set were also like, your hair looks stupid in that little ponytail. You just decided to like yeah. improv it into the movie. Because again, like I found a lot of evidence that a lot of stuff was improv um, into this movie despite the massive amount of rewrites, particularly mm-hmm. from Mel Gibson's character. So... um Cut the ponytail. (laughs) Um, So they're at the gun range where we again see the girdle and um, they're showing off these armor piercing bullets, which they start calling cop killers the whole time. Mm -hmm. Now this evoked a memory for me as a kid because, and the funny part is like having rewatched this, a lot of this movie was coming back to me. Yeah. I realized a few things. I realized, A, I have not seen this movie since I was a kid. I realized that I saw this movie somehow relatively Mm -hmm. youngish. And then I remembered, like, playground discussions with friends, like, cop killer bullets. Those are crazy. You know, like, can you believe that exists? And, And, like, again, same thing with this scene. It's so funny because presumably these police would know what an armor piercing round is. Yeah. Us as an audience don't necessarily maybe know. I mean, like, again, I don't know when armor piercing rounds were invented. Maybe Mm. it'd be interesting to look up, but essentially he holds up an extremely pointy bullet that he took 
from evidence, yep. <laughs> apparently, because they took it from the gun that they had received. So pff, chain of custody gone, my friends. Um, but he, he shoots the bullet through uh, the, um, Murtaugh's vest. vest to prove that it can shoot through the, the metal plate that's in there. And again, this is going to come up to play later on in the film, too. A, because the villains are these gum runners and they're also stealing all this um, armor-piercing rounds. I keep calling cop killers, cop killers, cop killers. Um, but they're going to use it at the end again, too, of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, turns out that Travis is at the station, um, and uh, we don't quite know. I mean, I guess we know that he's going to go and try and find um, – who was it? The guy that they captured, the guy that they yeah. captured from the armor truck thing. He needs to silence him. So that way, like, I guess he doesn't send him up the river or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, enter Rene Russo, um, who again, like I wasn't sure if they were saying it and I was missing it, but it took me a while to catch that her name was Lorna. So a lot of my notes mm-hmm. are Rene Russo in the early portion of this. Um, but she's an IA agent um, working at the station there, presumably, or at least visiting the station there. And she's kind of after Riggs and Murtaugh for, you know, their sort of, especially Riggs, I would say, for sort of his ongoing crazy antics. But it turns out she's also secretly there because they realize there's an inside job happening. This is a little bit later in the movie, but they realize there's this inside job happening at this particular station that Riggs and Murtaugh happened to work yeah. at again, where, where again, like the, the guns and the ammo are going missing from somehow. Uh, very convenient, extremely. Yeah, it's just right there on their doorstep. Um, so again, I mentioned this before, but the captain just reinstates them because pff, nothing, no reason, just, I guess, to annoy the IA people, which is like the worst possible idea as a cop. Like you don't want to get on IA's bedside usually. Mm-hmm. Um, and he makes a comment about the haircut. So I'm like, all right, chief's on my side too. Um, meanwhile, Travis has gotten all the way to Billy in the interrogation room. I like that it's Billy and Smitty mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's uh, hi, Billy. Bye, Billy. <laughs> and just like, you know, Boom. immediately shoots him. Um, and, uh, you know, he heads out of the place and the, the the cop that had just let him in, by the way, let him in because he's like, like, oh, I'm a sergeant. And he just like, mm-hmm. let him in, like yep. no proof needed, no badge, no nothing. Um, and he's just like, did you get what you need? And he's like, not really. It's a dead issue. La, 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 la. <laughs> Again, like these like ridiculous one liners in this yeah. film are like so insane. Um now, funny enough, and maybe this is a good time as any to mention it, um, as usual, I'm always finding um, other people that were supposedly going to play this character. Now, the guy who actually did play Jack Travis, I'm unfamiliar is, with. Is it, I've never, I don't, I don't know him from anything. I looked and... him up and I just, I really didn't recognize him. Um, but supposedly, among other people that were up or considered for the role, uh, was one Robert De Niro, who I thought would have actually made kind of a cool choice for this particular character. Mm. Your boy, Michael Keaton, oh, um, wow. who as another bit of just lethal weapon trivia in general was originally um, offered the original role of Riggs uh, and I guess turned it down. Um, James Caan, Jack Nicholson, Gene Hackman, and Al Pacino. Uh, and I guess they all turned down the role. So Wow. 
I don't know if they were busy or just wanted nothing to do with this particular character, especially as was written. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know who I thought would be a good for this role? James Woods. Yeah, that's another one. Yeah. Yeah. But it's. I think probably all these big names read it and they're like, this is pretty one-dimensional. Yeah, it's, uh, it, I mean, it's a pretty hinky character. So I don't know if they just had other things better to do or if they just looked at it and were like, so who knows? Anyway, the cops are trying to look at the surveillance footage and uh, essentially at first they're like, this guy's a genius. He knows exactly where to be so he's not on camera. <laughs> now, I don't know. Have you caught um, on YouTube – I can't think of the guy's name just now, and forgive me for that, because I actually watch his stuff all the time. But he does these videos where he plays the same character talking to himself, and one of them is pitching a movie, and the other one is is listening to the oh, movie. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, pitch meeting. Yes, movie pitch meeting. Thank you. <laughs> and- I was watching it today because I watched uh, a movie that I'll talk about next time. That I was like, how did this movie get made? <laughs> well, if you haven't seen it, Movie Pitch Meeting's incredible. It's being copied and mimicked all over the web by other people now. Yeah. And outside of that, the guy who does it is just really funny. He does a bunch of other really funny um, skits and things on his YouTube. But one of the ongoing tropes that he does in his uh, thing is, oh, well, that seems like a really big problem. And he goes, oh, no, not at all. Barely an inconvenience, <laughs> you know, like, and so it's the same thing here. They're like, oh, my God, this guy's a genius. He got around all our cameras. And Rene Russo's like, not at all. Barely an inconvenience. We actually installed these secret cameras that none of you knew about two months ago. So they just have, like, a direct view of the guy's face. Like, you know, it's just like – and it's so stupid because you have to think about 1992 versus now. Right now, you could probably conceivably hide a really tiny camera somewhere where somebody might not see it. This Back is, like, then. blatantly, like, like, you know, right in the middle of the room, staring right at the guy as he comes in the door – in 92, this would have been some big boxy job. Like, yeah. he would have known it was there. <laughs> it was so stupid. It was so pointless to have this whole scene where they're talking about that they the guy's a genius and they got his way around it. The only reason they do that is they're like, the only way he'd know this is if he's a cop. You yeah. know, and like, it basically like gives them like the instant solution. Now they know exactly who the bad guy is. Just just the dumbest police work ever. Like no, like having to like try and catch the guy in the act. They're like, Oh, we know that guy. It's Jack Travis. He used to be a cop here. No wonder he knew his way around in that precinct. Yeah. In that, yeah. <laughs> Which I guess is how he got in in the beginning. I guess the guy didn't know he's like not been a cop for a while or something. Absolutely insane. So, but it's, but what's weird is like, only the captain knows that he was fired for being a crooked cop and a violent cop. And I'm like, Murtaugh has been there for 20 yeah. years. He yeah, would know. It would have like been in the news or something probably. Anyway, to, to keep this going, because it's just absolutely insane. Next thing we know, we have another scene where Leo stops by and he's like, hey, Murtaugh, your house is full of termites because – why not? <laughs> and it's like, oh, hey, I know that guy. Like, because of course he does. <laughs> it's like, it's like, oh, really? And it's like, yeah. And he's like, and I can bring you exactly to where he's going to be. Like, like what? Like, again, like it goes, I know I was riffing on like Basil Exposition from, uh, from Austin Powers before, but it's to that level of insanity. 
every time Leo shows up, he instantly gives them access to exactly what they need to know, which just doesn't make any sense. So next thing you know, they're at a hockey game because he has front row seats at this hockey game because yeah. sure. And they, they again, like, like big problem, barely an inconvenience. Like, how are we going to find this guy? Well, Leo's like, well, he has like some of the best seats. He's probably down like at ringside near the glass. And they're like, well, how are we going to find him in this massive crowd? It's like, well, he just answered you. He's probably down near ringside. So like be quiet, spend the next hour hockey game looking around and find the guy by the glass. No, Riggs gets on the PA and calls out Travers and like Murtaugh's like, genius like oh my <laughs> god because like i guess that they think he's just gonna instantly freak out and stand up and run off travis has an immediate response of like i know that i'm gonna sit back down but then he changes his mind and gets up and starts trying to run off anyway <laughs> so yeah. like i don't know just questionable but like travis's superpower in this film besides getting away with any kind of like murder or crime at any time is his ability to escape Yes. Anything. So, like, he gets out on the ice. He's running off across the ice, which, again, like, seems like a dumb idea because once you get out on the ice, like, it's not like the doors are going to be, like, open to, like, run out. But for some reason, they are. (laughs) So he runs out. He shoots Leo on the way, who's made his way onto the ice. Riggs is being held up by, like, the referee. (laughs) You know, like, it's just it's just insane. It does have a very funny joke where Leo's like, oh, I can't feel anything. I'm, I'm so cold. I'm dying. And it's like, no, you're like laying on ice. Oh, yeah. He's <laughs> like, oh, yeah, you're fine. It's like a flesh wound. That was very funny. I did have to give them credit on that one. Um, and it cuts to a whole scene where he's in the hospital and he's, you know, like they have a whole rigmarole back and forth. But they basically get the doctor to hold him for a couple days. I don't know why they do that. You know, like, again, like they're kind of treating him as like the albatross around their necks that they don't want to like keep dealing with. But Leo is so far been nothing but completely helpful. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like he's brought them right to the bad guy without any extra effort needed on their part to track him down. I mean, like, I I don't know, maybe keep him around, you know, and especially completely helpful in the second movie too. Like, yeah. But again, like, it's like, if you're going to write this character back in, like write him in, like, don't just have him show up and give them a little bit of information. They need and then write him out for another five, 10 scenes. So annoying. Anyway, um, so they go to this little like uh, like burger shack, uh, and Murtaugh like like tells the guy to like come out, and he starts cooking. I guess he knows the guy. I guess this is what he wants to do when he retires. I don't know. They again don't really expand on this at any point again either. But like Riggs, like squirrel, like has like his crime sense going, and he like like. I guess he heard something. I don't know. He like stands up and walks off and like witnesses like a drug deal going down and again, starts a trend that I hate throughout the rest of this movie. And maybe he's already done it even with other things where he's basically by himself facing a group of super duper armed criminals and he holds up his badge and goes LAPD freeze and of course their instant reaction is just to start shooting (laughs) at him like crazy now this happens again and again and again throughout the rest of this film but this is the first of many and what this scene ultimately ends up with is that Murtaugh shows up to help out 
fires back and kills Daryl, who is his son's best friend. Or friend, not best friend. But but they, they called him his best friend, so that's where I'm, I'm coming up with that. I don't know that he is his friend, best friend, but he says his best friend at one point, so that's where I'm coming up with that from anyway. Um, so, okay, like, I get it. It kind of, like, finally sticks, like, a little, like, poignant moment into this otherwise kind of zany and... And, you know, kind of like high action sort of octane film. Mm. And it sort of like gets Murtaugh mad. Like, you know, like he's kind of been in this like, I'm so close to retirement. I just want to like take it easy, even though he doesn't really ever follow through with that. Like Riggs says jump and he kind of says how high. Mm. But he's like, all right, this has got me mad. So they, you know, uh, they go to like the funeral for for Daryl's character. Uh, and like his mother like slaps him and the father says, if you want to do something, you know, like find the kid, you know, who put this gun in my son's hand. And it sets off this trend in Murtaugh where he's like, babies, babies are being killed, babies, you know, and he's very upset about it. So like it it gives him a little bit more reasoning to, to, you know, go ahead and and do whatever. But um, I don't know. Mm. Anyway, uh, Riggs is fighting with Rene Russo in, in a scene and uh, he says it's schoolyard rules. And I felt like, again, like, and we've been hammering this point over and over, but he's such a man child. He yes. kind of really, like, doesn't make sense. Like, he just kind of does. He's very impetuous, just does whatever he wants, kind of whenever he wants, you know, and it's like she's kind of calling him out, like, properly. And I'm having a hard time because, you know, like, as, like, a lot of times in a movie like this, when you have somebody like Riggs's character, you're kind of on their side no matter what. But I'm kind of like, you know, she's kind of right. <laughs> you know, like he kind of keeps bungling things. So I don't know. But one, you know, essentially they start talking about that the gun that Daryl had was used in a series of crimes. It was confiscated by the police in relation to those crimes and was one of 15,000 guns that were stolen recently from a police lockup. I'm pretty sure they said 15,000. Yes. Maybe it was 1,500, but 15,000 seemed like a lot of guns to me to steal. 1,500 probably would have been enough. Um, But uh, they stole from the police lockup, and it sounds like it was from the lockup in their building, and somehow none of these cops know about this massive evidence theft that happened in their building. We find out a little bit later that they seem to be stealing this stuff through the subway that's being built underneath. Presumably that's where the guns were stolen too, although I don't know that they ever cleared that up. But I have to put a pin in a little statement that Rene Russo's character says, because um, Riggs sort of says something to her like, oh, I was close to catching whoever – And she says, close is a lingerie shop without a front window. Now, I heard this line and I was like, what on earth does that mean? Where did that come from? Is this a saying? And funny enough, as the movie keeps progressing, even Riggs says, like, I don't know what that means. Like, whatever. So I had to look it up. And it makes sense to me now in the context. Now, this was a line where they wanted to say something along these lines. And again, you and I have run into this in a couple of movies we've seen where they basically asked the cast and crew to think up some ideas of what would be a good line there. This strikes me as such a poor showing from writers, from directors that they have to ask the cast and crew to come up with something. Now, again, like the last time we talked about this was in white men can't jump. Mm -hmm. And in that case, they were just trying to come up with the best yo mama joke. 
So in the case of a Yo Mama joke, that's kind of like a fun idea. Like let everybody sort of like pitch some stuff and see what sticks. This is such like a random line to be like, hey, guys, everybody think and come back tomorrow with what you think is going to be like the best line for this or whatever. So apparently this was a line from Renee Russo, um, which is, I guess, pertinent. And she's the one that has to say it. And if you think about it, I guess in its basest sense, it makes sense, which is to say close is a lingerie shop without a front window. Close is useless. A lingerie shop without a front window is useless because you can't see the pretty stuff that's that's on sale that's, and attract your eye. That's how they t- That's essentially what they're going for with the line. Is that like close, po- close is useless, close doesn't matter. As opposed you know, to ho- close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Exactly. So instead of using something like a common saying like that, they decided to go with this. <sighs> I don't know. This is yeah. where I'm like losing strength for <laughs> for this movie because it's like these are just the choices that are happening here. I don't really understand it. <laughs> and apparently because I because I had to Google this, this is a ton of people Googling this. If you go out there on the web, there's umpteen results with people going, what on earth does close is a lingerie shop without a front window mean? If that's the case, and again, I realized Google wasn't a thing then, but if that's the case now, you know, all these years later, you know you failed on that line. <laughs> fair, fair, fair. All right. So, um, again, things happen. I, I, I must have missed a line of dialogue or maybe I didn't because, again, everybody just seems to have, like, perfect intuition of where they need to be in this film. But um, – <laughs> they end up, Riggs and Lorna end up at this place where it turns out that the guns are. Again, extremely unclear to me on how they knew to go there. Because this one didn't have like a Leo pop in where he was like, hey, I got a lead. The guns are at such and such garage or whatever, you know, um, with his platinum hair. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you catch how they knew they had to be here? At the At the... That that warehouse, yeah, that like garage warehouse place. I it struck me that they were talking about the guns missing, and next thing you know, they're just at the place. I think Lorna said she had a hunch, but but they they don't really establish where the hunch comes from. We'll just go off it being Lorna's hunch, then I guess. Anyway, um, there's this uh, what do you call that thing? Rottweiler uh, shows up, and it has like this like kind of dramatic reveal with a big shadow on the wall. And it comes in and it's really losing its mind. And like Riggs gets down on all four and is like talking to it and like, you know, like playing with it. And he eventually like convinces it like to like be his friend. And of course he's got all these dopey dog biscuits. So he's feeding them the dog biscuits and everything. And like Lorna leaves off. Like he's like, oh, just like go, go on, keep looking. Like this is a guy thing. <laughs> you know, like I just got to bomb with him. But then instead of Lorna showing up in the next scene, which is Riggs where the guys up. are that are hauling the guns. It's Riggs that shows up. Yeah. Again, just weird continuity. Like it's yeah. just really bizarre. You know, the dog's kind of nowhere to be seen now. Riggs, even though he just said, you go keep searching. I'm going to sit here with the dog for another couple of minutes is the one that, sh- I don't know, very bizarre. So again, like, I, I'm, I don't know. There's just like a lot of holes in this movie for me. Um, that being said, I still love the movie. I, still- I, 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 I Again, I enjoyed this film, so don't get me wrong, but it's just like, what on earth were they thinking? And I got, I'm going to call them out on it. So um, anyway, scene ensues. 
yet again where he walks into a room full of people and is like LAPD freeze. And of course they friggin' clock him with like a crowbar and then bash his head against a pole. He's, and our, at this point in this movie, he's had arguably three concussions in my yeah, opinion. No, the guy is like, I mean, maybe that accounts for why. And I, I think she, even when she sees him with a dog, she's like, you're actually crazy. Like, I think he's probably like knocked a few marbles loose through things like this. But again, it's just, it just seems so silly because his reaction every single like i just don't know how he's not dead by Mm -hmm. lethal weapon three if this is what he does in every movie walks into a scene full of guys with guns and goes lapd freeze and then just gets his butt handed to him how is he i mean concussion i don't know how he's not riddled with bullets yeah anyway they've captured him now here comes lorna Lorna's like Neo, she knows Kung Fu. And she just like, you know, lays the smack down on these guys, which then sets an another ongoing trope, which is Lorna walks into a room with five guys and lays them out repeatedly, like throughout the rest of this film. Like she's fine. She knows like some karate moves. Karate beats guns. Like why bring a gun to a karate fight? Because Lorna's going to lay you out. But the funny thing is her excuse for this is, I had three older brothers. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, I mean, like, that's any, like, strong female character in anything's excuse, isn't it? Like, I had tough older brothers and therefore I had to be tough. So yeah. not surprised to hear that one again here. So next thing, they steal the truck. Like, she basically jumps in and steals the truck that the criminals were loading full of the guns. And they start to drive it out. But the dog comes running out, jumps off of one of the bad guy's backs And Riggs is like, stop, 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 stop. She does what he says and stops. The dog jumps into the truck. She's like, I don't even want the dog. But she waits anyway and lets the dog catch up. And then because they, like, take off high speed again, like, one of the whole crates of guns falls out the back. So the bad guys just start collecting all the guns again. And and they're, like, in a city street. There's tons of people. Like, it's like a crate of machine guns. Yeah, but at least they have, like, some of the guns, I guess, and the dog or whatever. Um, anyway, (laughs) um, it's, it's back at her house because for some reason they go to her house. I'm not entirely sure why he's asking her if like she can look at his head, which I think is a completely reasonable request. She's acting like that's like a big to do and like, Oh, you're, you're like, yeah, I can't believe it. Um, and it leads into like a pretty memorable scene by all accounts where, Instead of like your normal sort of like flirtatious thing, they're comparing like gunshot wounds and things like that. I have to say the two of them collectively have been shot way too many times and they right. should both be retired on on like police comp from being yeah. injured so many times. <laughs> what was kind of cool is that a bunch of Riggs' stuff that he points out are like direct results of like the injuries he had in Lethal Weapon 2. No way, really. Yeah, like the like the knife wound and like some of those wounds are like direct pulls from Lethal Weapon too. So again, again, nice like paying homage backwards, um, which I feel like in in these sort of like sequelized movies doesn't always happen to that extent. Yeah. So it's kind of just like a fun thing. Um, I'm, I'm, also, I'm also glad that they showcase that he actually has scars from some of these yes, injuries. Yeah. <laughs> um, but of course, next thing you know, they're they're making out because of course they are, and now they're off to the races, and they have the dog. Okay, so this was another weird little thing for me, but I happily found an answer as to why this is. So the very next scene, it cuts to Riggs getting on a boat, and Murtaugh's there, and he, like, holds a gun out to him, 
And it turns out he's really drunk. And they have this whole kind of like knockdown drag out with each other where they both end up in the water. Uh, and the scene overall is like not terribly important to me because it's yet again like a let's progress their relationship sort of story. And like, again, like I have very mixed feelings about this because like on one hand, to me, one of the strongest strengths of the Lethal Weapon movies is the two of them and the way that they have their relationship together and the way they play off each other. But it's also a weakness in so much as like we don't need like five scenes in the movie where they have to have like a heart to heart or like, please don't sleep with my daughter, Mm. you know, conversations like it's just kind of like it gets to be a little much after a while. Yeah, they do kind of hit you over the head with it a few times. But I felt like it was really, really abrupt and really didn't have a good lead in. So it turns out there's a director's cut of this film, which I didn't see, which was not on HBO Max, which, by the way, and I didn't do it this time. I usually do. This film's available to watch on HBO Max. So if you want to pause the podcast here and go watch the film, available to see on HBO Max right now, along with all the other Lethal Weapon movies, I should say. Um, But it turned out it's not the director's cut that's on there. So in the director's cut, which I have not seen, there's a scene that was added back in here where... And I could be mixing things up, but I think I've got this right. Riggs goes back to his trailer, which they mention, yeah. but you don't really see in this film. We, to my we, ne- we, ne- we never see it in this. Movie. We've seen it in the first two movies that he kind of lives on a trailer, lives in a trailer on like the beach. by the water. Yeah. Um, so first of all, there's a character that was doing the work on Murtaugh's house in part two. That's now doing work on Riggs's trailer in part three. So his whole role got cut. Um, but I believe it's Murtaugh's wife shows up at his trailer and says like Murtaugh never came home last night. Do you know where he is? So basically Riggs knows to go and like look for Murtaugh at his boat. And that's what kicks off that scene. So I, I thought that that probably should have been in this because again, like I said, my gut reaction to this scene was like, wow, like, where did this come from? Like, why is he in his boat drunk? Like, was there no lead into this? How did Riggs know to go look for him there? You know, like, it just seemed like something was missing and lo and behold, something was missing. So um, again, I'm just, uh, I'm kind of happy to hear that that uh, exists. Now, fun fact about Murtaugh's boat, it's called Code 7, which in LAPD code is lunch break. So I thought that was a funny name for a boat for a cop. So <laughs> there you have that. Um, anyway, uh, the another, like, again, like, and I've mentioned Riggs kind of sucks. He's kind of a man child. You really get in this scene that he's really selfish too, because one of the things that gets brought up is he's like, well, when you retire, I'm going to have nothing like your family's my family. Your home is basically my home. Like I still have years on the force. I don't know what I'm going to do without you. And like, like again, those are probably like feelings that are coming from a genuine place, but I don't know that it's fair of him to like take this out on Murtaugh at this point when he's like clearly suffering from having shot his son's friend that he's grown up with and all this sort of thing. But obviously it gets into Murtaugh's head for how this movie and so it's worth just mentioning on that point alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, at this point, I paused the movie and I realized there were still f- 
44 minutes left to go. <laughs> and I officially hit my, this movie is too long meter, <laughs> which again, like I, you know me, I like long movies, but like, I think it's just like I said, that first portion of the movie, there's been scenes like this where I was like, you could cut this, you could cut this. And I'm like, this movie's just running too long for me at this point. Um, so they have a kind of a brief montage of going after a series of criminals. I thought it was going to be one of these ones where they're like, all right, let's let's do this. Because this is actually truly right after Daryl's funeral. So this is where Murtaugh is like really mad. And he's going to like really take this, you know, cartel of guys mm-hmm. down. Um, but it ends up only being like two or three stops on their like montage tour until they get ultimately to like who they wanted to, I guess, get to. Right. I sort of thought they could be like booking people, booking people until they had that shot where like the jail cell is all full of criminals or something. But it's really like three stops. And they end up at a garage where, yet again, Renee uh, Lorna beats the butt off five guys where, while, like, the two of them basically watch for a bit. Um, but it's a funny scene, though, because he's like, hey, watch this. He's like, Yo, yeah, I mean, it is. It is on that respect. But we also just saw it, like, five minutes ago. And, again, we're going to see it again in, like, another 20 minutes. So it's like, we get it. Lorna knows her, her kung fu moves or whatever. Um. Again, this I can't tell if this is just poorly written character or if this actor who's playing Travis is super cheesy. But this thing where he's like bent over the car, like waiting for the chief to come out. And then the chief gets there and he like stands up like real fast. And like, mm-hmm. like it was just like, oh, my God, it's so cringe. I couldn't stand it. Like it would have been better if they just did the thing where he was in his back seat or something like that. I'd have taken that trope. <laughs> um and uh, he, he goes off with the – he basically, like, kidnaps, like, the chief at this point. Yeah. It's around this time that I got curious about the ages of the actors in this movie. And I don't really know why, but I started really questioning it. So Danny Glover is 46. Mel Gibson is 36. And Renee Russo is 38. Now, does 46 seem a little young to you to be retiring for Danny Glover's character? Well, in cop terms, they can retire after 20 years. So figure if he did like four years of college, he would have started being a cop at 22. So he'd yeah. been 24 years in the force because he says later in the movie uh, at the very end, which is I'm jumping ahead. He says, I could do another 10 more years to forced retirement. Yeah. I it just again maybe he's also playing older. You know what yeah, I mean? Maybe playing. I don't older. know what the age of the character is, but it just seemed kind of like random to me. I was a little surprised that Mel Gibson was the youngest of the batch. Out of me the too. Game, That's surprising. Which again, like I was going to say, like, and I think I mentioned it earlier. Again, I'm just happy that Renee isn't like just some like twenty something because to be who she is at the stage she's at in her career, you know, it just makes sense. And I think you and I were sort of. It, it, I think what had this in my head is there's been an article floating around lately with Laura Dern discussing the what she calls inappropriate age gap between her and Alan Grant in the Jurassic Park series. And you and I were sort of chatting about this the other day that like from the perspective of a child, it was like, they're adults. Like, yeah. like I don't think I would have even guessed that they were terribly different in age, which yeah, it turned out either. that she was a good like 20-ish or more years younger. younger um, yeah. But like, I don't know if Laura Dern just seemed older or played older or like, you know, like Ellie Sattler just seems like somebody that's not a grad student. You know what I mean? Like, it seems like she's somebody that really knows what she's doing. So again, I'm getting off on like a real tangent here, but that's why I had in my head, like, I'm curious how 
old Renee Russo is in this in this role. So again, I'm happy that she wasn't like as apparently Laura Dern was some twenty something playing somebody that's older in this. Um, so Dolores, uh, which I don't know if we ever caught her name in the beginning, but apparently it's Dolores is back from the beginning. She was the oh, driver yes. of the uh, truck. Uh, she's come back with flowers. This whole scene is completely pointless. Basically, like it's just for gags, but like it starts off with like Riggs and Murtaugh talking about like, oh, maybe you should learn like some Kung Fu moves. And like Riggs is like, oh, I can show you. So he does like, like a roundhouse kick or something like that. Yeah. And he, he's like trying to like show Danny Glover how to do it. He's like, oh, back up more, back up more. All right, now do it. And like Danny Glover like kicks over like, a water cooler. Yeah. And they're all laughing at him. And then like Dolores shows up and Danny Glover's hiding behind a scene. And again, like it's for the lols. But again, like at this point in the movie, it didn't we, have a, we already have like Danny Glover's angry. He wants to bring down this people with the guns. Like we're past the silliness. Just like get on with it now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's like a five minute scene that just serves no purpose whatsoever, except for just being silliness in the film. Um. Anyway, um, Leo shows up again. He suggests to cut Riggs hair too, but they send Leo to dig up info about Mesa Verde because it's under construction and because he's a broker. <laughs> Okay, fine. I mean, like, do your own damn job. Like, detect something. Like, call them yourselves. Like, who? how are they going to know? You could just call up and be like, I'm interested in buying a place, whatever. And, like, I don't know what ultimate information Leo digs up about them. Like, if it's the location, whatever. We never really get a, a further information or payoff from Leo about it. They just tell him to do that, and then it doesn't ever come back again. Mm-hmm. Um Meanwhile, Travis and his people just kill anybody willy nilly. They're just like they just shoot like a like a cop in the garage and things like that. Um, they're just like killing all manner of people as they go through like no care in the world as, as to who they shoot. It just seems super unlikely to me that this like gun cartel is being so successful while being so not careful about what they're doing. You know what I mean? Um, and this is where if this character hadn't gone off the rails for me before that it just completely went off the rails for me at this point, he basically says that his reason for being like a murdering gun running criminal is that he thinks retiring as a cop is boring. Like he's like, there's, he's like, cops are dumb. They have no future. They, they retire and they get a pension and that's it. He's like, this is where it's at. And I'm like, I don't know if I've ever seen a criminal mastermind, if you can call them that, <laughs> doing it for like, I'd rather not be like retired collecting a pension. Yeah. <laughs> like it's – and again, like as you said earlier, like he was kicked off for being like a dirty cop or whatever. So I guess this is like the natural progression from him. But like if he was a dirty cop and all this, presumably he would have not only lost his job but been arrested already. So like yeah. they should have been like – I don't know. It, it, it's just like, it's so thin. It's so flimsy. I just hate this character. <laughs> and because of that, like, it's not even all that good a payoff when they ultimately get him in the end. Like, you know, like, I just, I don't know. It's getting Maybe. me so upset. It's giving me the hiccups. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's sort of, a, a, I mean, 
I mean, it's get a, a hobby, go fishing or something. <laughs> like, jeez. Yeah, it's a very flat, weak villain, and it's it's by far the weakest part of the whole movie by far. And yes, there are a lot of plot holes, and it's it's really it's just basically a movie to put Riggs and Murtaugh in hijinks again. That's really what it is. So here's the next stupid thing. So they go down to like check on like the the ammo, and the ammo has just been like stolen from their precinct through this subway that's being worked on under their precinct. How, how did they get this massive crate of ammo, not only down into a subway, but then on a truck on the tracks? No clue. (laughs) An elevator, an elevator. I guess, but it's like, you know how much manpower it would take those couple of bad guys to like be like hauling these huge, heavy crates of ammo. I don't know. It's just insane, but it leads to another, shootout in the subway um this young cop which we met earlier in the film turns out is his birthday i'm like holy shit here's the red shirt Mm -hmm. look out buddy you're about to die (laughs) you know they let him come with them immediately gets killed (laughs) you know you know murtaugh's doing his another baby another baby it's like well you should have made him stay upstairs then the better question is why bring this one guy why not bring the whole damn precinct down with you (laughs) you know like insane like it's just like it's making me want to pull my hair out at this point um they get into this uh chase which is actually kind of a unique and cool chase because they've got um, one of these trucks and i've seen these trucks in real life that are basically like utility trucks for working on train tracks and so they have a regular set of tires and they have like a secondary set of wheels that fit the train tracks that they can you know bring up and down which is a real thing you know where i saw this the first time ever was at our college uh, because we had the train behind mm-hmm. there. I actually saw one of these trucks on the, on the tracks there. So that's where I was kind of one of my first intros to that. Interesting. Um, and it looked just like the one in this film, like that kind of just drab khaki truck. <laughs> um, but it leads to this kind of cool uh, chase. I don't entirely understand the logistics of how Riggs managed to catch up at first, because basically they're under their precinct their truck takes off down the tracks and the way that Riggs catches up is by going upstairs and like the bad guys are like there, but really they should be like quite a distance away down the tracks. But again, like, you know, magic of movie transportation somehow just by going upstairs, he's caught up with them. He went vertical, they went horizontal and somehow they met at the same spot. Bizarre. (laughs) But he, as you said, commandeers a motorcycle Possibly my favorite moment in the entire film because the cop who's standing there with his motorcycle's reaction to that is, this is bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Just for no reason. Like this like police sergeant comes up to him is like, I'm in an active chase. I need your motorcycle. And the guy's reaction is, this is this is bullshit. It's like, oh, Riggs again. God, like, it's just one of those things. It's like, oh, this guy again. I didn't find any information, but I'd love to know if that guy is somebody like just some cameo role or something like that, because it seems too good to have this like speaking part of this one cop saying that instead of like, sure, Sergeant, here you go. Just to have that reaction was very funny. Made me laugh out loud. Um, so, Anyway, uh, he's chasing him. And this is then the chase you were referring to Mm, earlier, which is a really cool chase, like through these kind of like crazy um, elevated highways in L.A. Um, Again, um, Travis has this magic ability to escape like he's basically cornered. They get to this dead end section of a highway where they're working on an unfinished portion and like. 
his basically hits the end of it, turns around, and then drives at Riggs while shooting a machine gun, and Riggs ends up going off the end of the highway and, and falling <laughs> down. And, and, like, if he didn't have that concussion before, like, he should definitely have that concussion and a broken back and fractured ribs and <laughs> and maybe just playing dead now because he yeah. falls from a fair height from, like, a rope he's hanging on to that, that falls down onto a bunch of scaffolding below which kind of breaks his fall, I guess. Like, again, mm-hmm. I just don't know how he's not dead. But, again, Travis escapes. Like, dude is straight up an escape artist. Yep. And, like, all these other cop cars and everything else that's in pursuit, none of them apparently catch him because he's just gone and scot-free once Riggs isn't able to catch him. And everybody stops chasing him and just goes down and leaves all their police cars where Riggs has fallen. Do you notice that? Like, yeah. they just kind of gave up the chase and just, like, went below. <laughs> and magically, here comes Leo again. <laughs> and how? Well, he has a police scanner. Okay, sure. Yeah. So that's like – and by the way, the whole scene, it was really annoying. Murtaugh just keeps yelling into the radio, where's Riggs? Where's mm-hmm. Riggs? Obviously, this is, like, pre-GPS and things like that. I don't know how any of the cops would know where Riggs is. It's not like he's yeah. on the radio calling in. Like I'm at first and broad. I'm at like the highway, you know, like uh, just utterly bizarre. So I don't know how Murtaugh caught up with him. And I don't know how Leo of all people caught up with him at this, at this spot, I guess they might've had some one-off where they're like, we're at the unfinished construction of the highway. I think something like that. Um, but it's, it's just bizarre, this thing in this movie where everybody constantly knows exactly where they need to be. Yeah. Um, in a lull moment, Leo wants to come with them, but they shoot his tires like kind of a jerk move, but whatever. <laughs> and they shoot um, not one, but two tires. So he can't yeah. put a spare on. <laughs> um, so they show up now at Mesa Verde because I guess, I guess this was the payoff is that Leo has told them where this Mesa Verde construction site is now very similar to the beginning of this movie when they blew up that, um, uh, landmark of the, uh, the town hall in Orlando. This was also a real location. There was basically a, I think it was 54 home development that, essentially like lost its funding and was sitting dead for two years. No kidding. Really? Yeah. Wow. And basically as a way to recoup a little bit of the money that they like had lost on it, they, they allowed the film to shoot and, and go there and under, under the condition that the people that were doing the film actually wrecked the entire place that they had to com- like completely burn it down. Wow. Not necessarily burn it down, but they had to bring in people afterwards to, destroy the site and bring it back to like level ground zero, essentially. Wow. Um, so I think out of the 52 or 56 houses, they used like 16 or something for the actual um, finished <laughs> scene that we end up seeing. Uh, and they actually had to um, do a ton of work to get it prepped. They, Cause these houses were a bit more built, mm-hmm. you know, they're making it look like they're actually building them framework at this point. They actually had to strip these houses down to the framework. They had to remove um, all like interiors of these houses, they had to remove um, insulation. They had to remove like gas lines. They had to remove no all kidding. sorts of stuff that would be flammable and otherwise dangerous in order to film the scenes they wanted to film as they did. Um, so they actually like rigged it up as a lot of films do with like gas lines and things like that. So they could like turn the flames on, turn the flames off and nothing was 
being destroyed between takes. And one final fun note about this is that they were filming the scene in this desert area uh, in the middle of January. So it was actually very, very cold while they were filming this. So everybody was extremely happy to have the buildings burning because it provided some heat because they were all (laughs) freezing. Uh, So there's your fun facts for that final scene. Anyway, they have this idea. Finally, somebody gets an idea in their head and they go, oh, there's a whole lot of guys with guns here. We can't just like run in and and like shoot this place up or, or call out. We got to do something. So they take poor Murtaugh's car and stick the thing like I guess like they put it like a brick or something on the on the accelerator and send it driving through. And the car gets RoboCop levels of annihilated. Oh, yeah. It gets Swiss cheese. Like, like one whole side of the car is just bullet holes. Like I don't know how there's any metal left on it because it's just bullet holes, bullet holes, bullet holes. But then what was the point of that? Because they go, all right, now we're going to count one, two, three, and then I guess go get them. And so, like, they drive the car in. These people, I guess the point was maybe they would unload some of their ammunition and be, like, out of ammo a bit. They had, like, like, 100,000 rounds. They're like, one, two, and then, like, Rene Russo stands up and goes, LAPD freeze (laughs) again. Like, oh, my God, put it, put the gun in my mouth because I'm done at this point. And what do they do? They start getting shot at immediately. Like, like again, like these three are buffoons. There is nothing that they're learning from their multiple mistakes where every single time that they show up with these people that have full on like they just saw what happened to that car. And so now they're going to stand up from behind this little concrete barrier where all three of them are sat together and say, LAPD freeze. These people are going to murder you. (laughs) So anyway, movie magic kicks in. These people are like unloading fully automatic weapons at them. Not a bullet hits them, even though that car was just cheddar cheese a moment before. Um, They do a trail of fire. Um, like they did in Die Hard 2, I noticed. Yeah. Uh, like they, they siphon the gas out and he drives the car through the houses, which lights them all on fire as a means to do something. I guess the bad guys were hiding in the houses, so this makes them on fire. Create a diversion? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, create a cool set piece. <laughs> um, the truck of ammo, uh, which is why the way what he uses to set this fire, goes up, of course, like fireworks. Um, but like it, all those bullets. Yeah. Again, <laughs> presumably like... I, they're again, all popular bullets. They would have every gone. single time we get into a movie like this, I'm like the armchair expert on firework on firearms. I know nothing about guns. I know nothing about ammo as a disclaimer. But just thinking about physics and science for a minute, they have crates and crates and crates of ammo. And ammo's pretty tiny and the crates are pretty big. So there's gotta be like thousands if not tens of thousands of rounds easily being driven into fire i don't know how fast ammunition would explode in a fire again as movies go it's like ammo hits fire instant explosion yeah (laughs) um but it yeah presumably that shit would be going everywhere and just like turning every it's like it's like a giant uh 
<laughs> like mine going off. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like, I, like, I, like a Gatling gun. Yeah. I, I can't think of the type of mine, what it's called, but like those ones that like have the ball bearings and they go every which way and just destroy everything in like an X number of radius yeah. around them. Basically that I would think, but you know, it just kind of does like a firework. And that's why I really truly say firework just kind of has like a, like, like how you've come to think of like gas explosions in movies it just mm. has like this big explosion. And that's that really no sort of, outcome from that i don't think anybody gets hit by it that i saw um renee russo gets shot she does an epic yell you know like i'm I'm very used to i guess um women in movies if they get hurt or shot they're like ah she's like ah (laughs) she kind of has like this like really funny like yell like and i don't know if they were trying to do like a slow-mo because it kind of wasn't but she just kind of has this like real guttural yell. It's not like a mm-hmm. screechy yell. It's like a real gut yell, um, which again was great. I loved it. Um, and then uh, Travis is going to kill Riggs with a backhoe. Um, he's driving at him with the bucket up, and Riggs is just like patoo, patoo, patoo. and of course it's like ping ping, like shooting off the like the you know like the the scoop of the backhoe. Um, his regular bullets are bouncing off, but Murtaugh very thoughtfully has a loaded gun with the infamous cop killers. They got the cop killers, <laughs> uh, which of course go right through it. Like it's a piece of paper Yeah, and hit Travis. Um, and then uh, he goes over to him. Riggs goes over to him and he's still alive somehow. And he's like, see you in hell. Not if you go there first or something like that, you know, and like basically like pushes like the payloader into drive and lets it drive into the fiery building and burns Um, him a lot. Burns him alive. Yeah. Presumably unless he's like dies by the bullet wounds first, I guess. Um, pretty much the end of this film. There's still a little like, you know, cleanup going on here, but, um, pretty good, you know, finale fight scene as these sort of things go, um, again, I didn't have a lot of stakes in it because unlike a Hans Gruber or unlike a lot of these other kind of all time classical villains, I cared not at all about this actor. I yeah. cared not at all about this character. It was just like, wah, wah, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's pretty much that, um, takeaways. I thought, um, that Riggs and Lorna are too into each other for the amount of time that they've known each other. Um, they basically go visit her like at the like hospital, I think. And like, they're acting like they've been dating for months and months. Like they're calling each other like honey and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Uh, If you go by the timeline of this film, they've only known each other for about six days. No, less than that. Probably about four days. Yeah, maybe. I'm just trying to go off of like when we met Murtaugh, it was eight days to retirement. And now he's about to retire like that day. Mm. Um, So... Again, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, it could be interesting that they're just starting to date, but it doesn't, it feels like they're acting like they're too into a relationship already. Yeah, I get that. I could. Um, It's finally retirement day for this poor guy, and he cannot even take a bath by himself. He's nude in a bathtub. (laughs) Um, He's not ready to retire. We get that takeaway that he's going to put in another 10 years. But as you just said, I really need to point out that this guy's entire family just came in and sat around him in a bathtub while he is presumably completely butt naked. He is in a bubble bath, but as we do, (laughs) it's kind of a small bathtub. Like the dude's knees are popped up and everything. I think they could have waited for this cake. 
They all come in there and want him to blow the cake out. Riggs shows up and makes a, um, shall we say, um, joke about the size of his member. Mm-hmm. And his it cuts to a shot of his son, and his son is, like, nodding knowingly, <laughs> which is even more gross. Like, I'm really creeped out by the fact that, like, this man's, like, young-ish, you know, semi-adult children – which includes several daughters are just like standing around him naked in a bathtub (laughs) (laughs) trying to like talk to him during this whole scene. Um, I think they could have waited for the poor bugger to get out of the bathtub, but again, I guess they did it for the lols. There's a lot of like, why did they do this? Did it for the lols. Um, And again, you and I talked about this before. They seem like they have no plans for a new house, even though Leo is there like, all right, we sold this. It's done. Like it's good to go. It's like, Oh no, we're not going to sell it anymore. We're going to live here and I'm not going to retire anymore. Like, again, did they not have plans for a new house? Did they not put a down payment nope. somewhere? Like, they were just going to sell this thing with, like, no idea where they were going, no money down. No, like, again, just makes no sense. That's why Riggs is renovating his, his uh, trailer, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, he, the two of them get in the car, I think, to go pick up Lorna from the hospital. And he's like, I've got a dog biscuit problem now, which I thought was very funny. Um, And uh, they're still arguing about, like, please don't date my daughter, which, again, is, like, kind of creepy. And I'm just done with it. So uh, because I guess she, like, gave him, like, a a kiss on the cheek, which, again, why? I mean, it just seems out of place. We've barely seen his daughter in this film. Like, the, the family really has very little involvement. Mm-hmm. In this oh, movie. Oh, yeah. They're barely in this movie. So, I mean, basically the end. Um, this is not my favorite Lethal Weapon movie. Um, fair, fair. I, I, I Again, it was enjoyable. I be, For the sake of this podcast, as I usually do, I point out all these dopey plot holes and, and odd oddities that they put in these films. But I did enjoy it. I was able to sit through it and watch it. I did have that moment where I was like, gosh, this feels like it's going on too long. They probably could have trimmed some fat. Not my favorite of the of the three movies or of which the four is your, movies. Which is your favorite? Probably the original. Um, I, I think I'd probably lean back to again. It's hard for me to say because I have not seen them in years and years. Like I said in the last episode, my intro to these movies was a, a three set VHS box that my parents mm-hmm. had bought, and so like while my dad was watching them, I think I was watching along with them. I probably shouldn't have, you know, I might've been, I might not have been like the age they were when they came out. Like I'm presuming if this was like a three box set, it probably wasn't even the initial VHS release. It was probably like a couple of years later. So I might've mm-hmm. been like 12 ish, you know, something like that. So, you know, whatever, but there is like some F bombs and whatever in these films. So I don't know. I, I, but like, again, it's probably been since then that I've seen these or probably what happened if I had to bet money is my mom got these for my dad and then I probably like swiped them and watched them like on yeah. my own time. You know what I mean? Like when they weren't like paying attention, I saw a lot of movies. I probably shouldn't have seen that way. Um, but uh, you know, again, like it brought back some fond memories. I feel like we're starting to get in a zone for me now where, unless it's something that I've obviously seen multiple times that I'm starting to have like mental recollections of like, mm-hmm. Oh Yes. I very clearly remember seeing this like uh, intro sequence when I was a kid with the fire and the black. Oh yes. I definitely remember this or that, you know, so uh, that's kind of making me happy as we're starting to get along in some of these films. Cause the one bummer of like, we started this in 1990 and you and I are eight years old is like, 
we haven't seen a lot of these movies when we're eight. We didn't see them till later. Now I'm starting to have like true recollections of actually having seen some of these things when I was young. So that's kind of a fun part of going back. And some of the movies like this, I just have not seen since I was young. So it has that fun nostalgia factor. But yeah, I think for me, probably it's going to be one or two. It's probably not this one. I think this is kind of weak out of the best. That's fair. That's fair. I, Four, that's- I get the impression I haven't seen. Just given some of our discussion last time, I get the impression I have not seen it. So maybe I need to put it on. It has Chris Rock in it. That's all I got to say. Yeah. Which is maybe like enough reason to watch it. <laughs> there you go. Okay. But listen, it's got plot holes. Yes. It is a horrible, lame villain. But I just enjoy the two of them together. They're just they're just fun together, in my opinion. In my opinion. No, for a fact. And like I, I said that a minute ago, like, again, like, if you're showing up for these movies, it's for the dynamic between the two of them. Like, as you said earlier... Like, I don't know if they started the buddy cop genre. Like, I, I can't remember what originates it. Maybe it was these movies. But if they didn't originate it, they certainly cemented it. And they certainly set a roadmap for what that genre could be and how it should be handled. Uh, and kind of how those characters can act with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, there's certainly other ones out there that, I might even appreciate or like more than, than these movies, like maybe like rush hour comes to mind or things like that. Um, But uh, for a fact, like there's a lot of memorable stuff. There's a lot of lines that have entered, um, you know, popular culture. Like you and I all the time, are like we're too old for this, you know, sort of thing. So just the everyday life, like yeah. (laughs) Let me ask you a question. Both of us have a fond memory and connection with a particular actor. Now, wouldn't a a diehard movie have been great with Bruce Willis and Reginald Vell Johnson on the journey together, like in the entire movie? I mean, you can sort of make the argument, was it into – where no. he's like on the phone with him a bit or on the radio and he's like the only one believing him or is that one? So so one, he's the he's on the radio with him the whole movie. Two, we only see him in the very, very beginning of the movie as like a cameo and we never see him again in other movies. So I like, always so like arguably they're doing the buddy cop thing in the first one. They're yeah, not together, like they're not running. I mean, like another kind of like interesting note, like just like as a like a again point in case. One of the one of the like trivia things I saw about this that I didn't bother bringing up was that this is the first movie in the franchise where the two of them make an arrest together. Hmm. That like the arrest that you see happen in one and two is them arresting people on their own. Huh. So like under that kind of context, it's like buddy cops, and yet they're kind of doing like important things like that separately, you know? So. Um, kind of interesting, but um, yeah, I I would actually like to see, you know, Bruce Willis and, and uh, Reginald Vell Johnson doing a genuine like ride along sort of yeah. buddy cop sort of thing. I don't know; it would make sense for the characters because obviously, like Reginald Vell Johnson's a cop in Chicago, and and but uh, no, Bruce, in, in Die Hard, he's a cop in L.A. in L.A. But then he goes to Chicago in two, right? Am I no, 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 no. He goes to Chicago in Family Matters. <laughs> 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 yes, but like, no, so it, no. Does it two take place in Chicago, and then he's like on the phone with him or something? No, two takes place in Washington D.C. In Dulles, yeah, and 
Where am I? Yeah, I guess I'm literally only <laughs> thinking of Family Matters. <laughs> yes. So Reginald Bell Johnson of Die Hard is an LAPD cop who becomes Carl Winslow, a <laughs> Chicago-based cop. <laughs> yes. So nice. there you go. Okay, Michael, I think that's enough for this one. Why don't you tell the folks out there what we have on the roster for June 92? Okay, so as I've mentioned, we won't be listing Batman Returns because I covered it on another podcast, which we will air in June as a bonus episode. I will put that out there for us so you have it. That being said, there's not a lot of June movies that are real big blockbusters other than Batman Returns because I assume Batman Returns just sort of dominated the box office, obviously, because it's the biggest grossing movie of that year, nonetheless. That being said, number three, which is a a June release, is Patriot Games, which I would love to have that on the list. Number six is a horrible movie (laughs) called House Sitter with Goldie Hawn and Steve Martin. Uh, So wait, I got to put a pin in it because I think you've got a little – I think this has happened to you in the past too. You've got a little bit of a different list than me. Um, so I specifically, down. I usually go by the calendar grosses per month. So let me run down what I'm seeing on my end. So just okay. literally one to four is Batman Returns, Sister Act, Patriot Games, and Lethal Weapon 3. That's what I, that's what I have, yes. So we're going to rule out Batman Returns and Lethal Weapon 3 for obvious reasons. So that would leave the list in my mind then. Sister Act, Patriot Games, House Sitter, and technically number six is far and away. So, again, because we're not necessarily going off of only June grosses. It's just the top four top grossing. Fair. So this is where I'm going to throw the bone again. So here's what I'm going to propose. Okay. Sister Act, Patriot Games, House Sitter, which is a Steve Martin film, uh, Goldie Hawn, I think, too. And we're going to throw Encino Man back in the the pile and and let the folks have a second chance at throwing that one back on top because – I don't know where Encino Man stands for people versus Sister Act. If I had to guess, there might be enough Whoopi Goldberg Sister Act people out there to thrash Encino Man. But I'd like to see what that vote looks like. And again, Patriot Games, decent movie. And House Sitter, if I recall, decent movie. So Horrible movie. Is it? Horrible movie. I just can't recall off the top of my head. I feel like if it has Steve Martin and Goldie Hawn, it should be good. Yeah, that's what they would think too. <laughs> but but uh, I I don't know. In fairness, I just don't remember it that well. So that's going to be what I'm going to be putting up on our poll um, after this episode launches, and we'll see where we uh, where we get from that. That's fair. That's fair. All right. So that's going to um, do it for this week uh, and for this review. Um, why don't you tell them where they can get a hold of us, Michael? Sure. So you can hit us up on our Twitter which is Box Office 3-0, and our Facebook, which is also Box Office 3-0. You can follow us on Instagram at Box Office T-H-I-R-T-Y. You can also go to our website, boxoffice30.com, and check out a, a catalog of back episodes. Kind of. Kind of. <laughs> every time, we, every, every week, we're like, go check out the back a, a, a catalog of episodes. And at some point, like if somebody's listening to this episode, it's going to be true. 
But right now it's like pretty much just like the newest episodes and I still have to go back and add like 40 some odd uh, <laughs> episodes. That's all right. We it's also just get our bios in there it's too. It's so awful putting it back in. It is, yes. In fairness, you can go to our website, Box Office 30, see the newer site, see that. We've got some more work to do on the site. But you can also visit like what used to be our site, which is something like boxoffice30.transistor.fm, which is Transistor is the the place where we upload all of these episodes to and it's who hosts all of our um, episodes. And there you can well and truly see the back catalog. But to build on that, if you would genuinely like to listen to the full back catalog, you can certainly subscribe to us on any basically platform where you you would download podcasts, including um, Spotify, Google Music, iTunes. Um, and if you're on any of those spots, do us a favor, throw us a bone, give us a rating. If you enjoyed what you heard here, if you laughed at Mike and I struggling to remember these movies or or if you if you think we did a good job uh, wrapping it up, or uh, even if not, give us a, a nice five star rating. Help us boost our listenership. Um, we do this for kicks, but we also do this for you guys. And the more people this reaches, the better. The more it gets out there in the world, the better. We can keep doing more stuff with it. Um, and with that said, please do check out the Retro Network. They are, as always, our wonderful hosts. They. Um, do a lot to get our info out there on social media. They give us a place to live. We are always grateful for them uh, hosting us and, and just, you know, being some really cool guys. And as usual, there's also a lot of really great um, content over on the Retro Network to check out, uh, including, I would mention, uh, because they always are so kind about um, chatting about us when, when they're talking about 1992 films, uh, check out the articles on Film Fridays. Um, it picks up a lot of the slack that Michael and I tend to leave when we're doing our horrible job recalling things. For example, uh, and I, I'm going to call you out on this one, buddy. I'm sorry. But uh, we were talking last episode and we were talking about K2 and you said that it was a skiing movie. And it is about climbing a hill called K2. Now, in, in fairness, I was somewhat with you because, like, when I hear K2, I'm like, that's written on skis. <laughs> but it's in reference to this mountain that's called K2, as it turns out. So I will um, admit, I will admit, as I said it when we were talking last time, I, I was on IMDb and I'm like, uh, I got that wrong. What's, what's wonderful about you, and if you haven't seen this, I'm going to suggest it for you right now and, and for our listeners, I'm going to suggest it to you as well. There's a show that popped up recently on Netflix called, uh, I think it's like, is it bullshit or, or maybe it's just called bullshit. It's a, a game show that Howie Mandel is hosting. And it's like, if you took like who wants to be a millionaire and put like a unique spin on it. And basically the premise is you get these, who wants to be a millionaire store sort of questions uh, and a single person is trying to answer them and you keep like earning levels of money and working your way up to, I think, a million dollars or something like that. The twist comes in that you can also answer the question wrong. You give you get four multiple choice answers and you answer the question to the best of your ability. If you get it right, wonderful. You have to tell a little story about how you know that you got that question right. If you get it wrong, wonderful. You need to tell a story about how that wrong answer is actually the right answer. You have to try and bullshit your way through it. And then there's a panel of three peer judges 
that have to um, guess if you knew the answer correctly or if you were bullshitting your way through it. And you would do awesome on this show because oh, I need to be on this show. When you were talking about that K two movie, you were like doing exactly as these people. You're like, oh, so as you know, back in the '90s, there was all these great skiing movies, and K two is about these skiers that go up. On a, and as it turns out, it is complete bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> so you would you would have been kicking butt on this show. So I need to be on this show. I got to be on season two. <laughs> Um, so anyway, uh, go check out Film Fridays because they the articles are great and they fill in a lot of the gaps. I don't know if they're researching it or remembering it. Bless you if you're remembering all this stuff because obviously we are failing at remembering this stuff quite now, half as well now, as are some they of the just rest of these recollections. Are, are they just destroying me on this thing? Like, oh, this guy – this guy, hi. We should. We should get a crossover where it's just like, here's where Box Office 30 failed this month. <laughs> we are ranked in film history podcasts. So, hey. Yeah. Look at that. yeah. I actually saw some metric like we're 148 in Sweden this month or something like Ooh. that. I, I don't know where Jason gets these metrics when he lets me know about them. But um, I followed some website that sends me them. And I, it never sends me the U.S., which I'm, I'm presuming means that we're so far off the chart in the U.S. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but like every once in a while, it'll be like, hey, you're 148 in Sweden. And I'm like, wonderful. Hello, Swedes. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's fantastic. Yes. Well, as always, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. And... We'll see you in June, and hopefully I want to talk about some Top Gun if we get to that. I'm looking forward to that. Oh, boy. All right. Bye, friends. This is bullshit. (laughs) Son of a bitch. (laughs) This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.